everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am Alex Steed. I'm one of your hosts. I'll soon be joined by my illustrious co-host, Sarah Marshall. We are talking about one of our favorite movies, Ready or Not. I'm so excited to get into that with you and to get into that with Sarah. But first, I should let you know that You Are Good is made possible with support by you, Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. If you support us on Patreon, you make the show possible. Thank you so much. And you get bonus episodes very soon, within the next week or so. There'll be a bonus episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We like it a whole lot. <laughs> we talk about exactly that. Our last bonus episode was about grief and mourning. This episode is about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You never know what we're going to cover on our Patreon bonuses. So thanks for supporting us on Patreon. And uh, thanks for sticking around for that uh, grab bag of bonus subjects. <laughs> you are good is also made possible with support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Finally, each of our episodes comes with a link to a playlist these are songs that make us think of this conversation. These are songs that make us think of this movie. You can find it in the show notes. So check out the show notes to find out what music comes to mind when we think about this chat and we think about this movie. This is a uh, Sarah and Alex episode, no guest, as we uh, joke about and then also get really into, you know, it's uh, deeper of a mental health conversation <laughs> than is typical when we have guests. Uh, Sarah and I tend to get into it when it's just us because it's two friends chatting in an intimate setting. And we're so happy for you to be here with us when we do that. We're talking about Ready or Not, which is a 2019 American comedy horror film directed by Matt Bettinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillette. It's written by Guy Busick and R. Christopher Murray. It stars Samara Weaving, Adam Brody, Mark O'Brien, Henry Cherney, and Andy McDowell. It follows Grace, a newlywed who is hunted by her spouse's family as part of a wedding night ritual. We love this movie. This is a big favorite of Sarah's and mine. We rarely cover movies that are younger than 10 years old, but uh, this this is Sarah was like, this is a summer movie. This is a wedding movie. We're in wedding season. Let's get into it. So we are talking about ready or not. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for helping make this show possible by listening. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. Again, you can find us on Patreon where you can get bonus episodes. Yeah, I think that's it before we uh, dive into this episode. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here. You are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall brown-haired podcast host <laughs> you continue to exist that's my favorite line as you know <laughs> hello alex dean we're talking about ready or not this is a sarah and alex exclusive this is a sir alex this is my favorite recent horror movie i have to say totally i agree although i did see hatching recently and it is a fantastic contender but it is mm. not this <laughs> it is certainly not ready or not ready or not so okay i just want to describe what it's like to be friends with you one element <laughs> to be friends with sarah is to hear very regular references to movies or media you probably have not seen and you will hear those references until you just have to see the movie and ready or not is one i think that came up it was early pandemic for mm -hmm. me that you had been nudging in the direction of being like, you know, because you just want to share the joy. You're like, I, I have joy in me from this and I want you to have joy in and then we can revel in that joy like a joy sandbox. Yes. And uh, I saw this and it literally I can say with confidence that like literally every suggestion you've ever made, I have loved and enjoyed. Wow. I just tore through the show Wayne, which is one that you've been recommending to me for years. And it was fantastic. But Ready or Not was a real special enterprise. It's such a special <laughs> movie. I feel like, God, where to begin? I mean, also, we're doing this because we're entering wedding season. I think we're already in it. So yes, it's, it's seasonal. And... Should I say what it's about? Yeah, that sounds great. 
All right. So this movie stars, I realize I don't know how her name is pronounced, and I did not get up early enough to check before talking to you. So it's either Samara or Samara Weaving. I'm leaning mm. towards Samara, which must have been incredibly fun for her with the ring coming out when she was like a tween. <laughs> but her character's name is Grace, and that's what we're going to call her. And so we open with Grace marrying her boyfriend, Alex, at his fucked up family's very fancy estate which at least the exteriors are also where they filmed Billy Madison. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> and basically learning on the wedding night that the family has this weird tradition. They made all their money in board games. And so when someone new marries into the family, they have to draw a random card and play whatever game the card says. So like maybe it'll be old maid, maybe it'll be chess but we have established outside of Grace's presence that if she gets the hide and seek card, she has to go hide and then the rest of the family will spend the rest of the night trying to kill her or specifically trying to capture her so they can then sacrifice her at dawn because they are literal Satanists. And to me, the most amazing thing about this movie is that like i hate satanists in movies for obvious reasons i don't think they're <laughs> doing victims of the satanic panic any favors but i love that it's satanism in this movie because i think it's essentially an allegory for being rich and that really works yes. and then that's the rest of the movie is like her trying to escape the family it's kind of a, kind of a heist movie because she's trying to get out of the house and to figure out who is going to be on her side and who she can trust and so she has alex her brand new husband his brother daniel i think played by adrian brody from the oc his wife charity who is sort of emulating marissa's mom from the oc <laughs> which I'm sure you remember that character. And then their sister, Emily, who has like big Shit's Creek energy. As I say, not having seen Shit's Creek, but I've been on the internet yeah. and I've seen gifts. Pretty and, good. It's fair. And her husband, Fitch. <laughs> also has big Shit's Creek energy. <laughs> <laughs> and then their parents, Andy McDowell and Henry Cherney, a.k.a. CIA daddy from Clear and Present Danger. <laughs> Yeah, he's aged very well. He looks great. <laughs> he looks fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> he's been in Langley this whole time. <laughs> I take him now versus take him in 94 or whenever that was. Yeah. And yeah, and that's the movie. I feel like it's a classic slasher movie where it's like you go to a remote location and people get killed off one by one because of something in the past. Although we kind of get our payoff mostly at the end here. And I don't know. I love anything that plays with the slasher or plays with the like woman alone in the country's jeopardized model. That was part of why I really liked men. Mm. And what I think is so remarkable about this and what makes me realize how it's been missing most of the time is that we get like a heroine who's talking and reacting to things the whole time and is like verbal. And it's amazing to realize that, like, even the slasher heroines that I love, the final girls closest to my heart, they don't say very much and they don't seem to have senses of humor either. Yeah, totally. They're very serious. Yes. Because they have to prove that they're not frivolous. Right. Their frivolity will be the end of them. It will. <laughs> you paint your nails once you're dead. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, what, I mean, when you originally watched this, what struck you? Like, what? what why were you like, this is special? So... Samara Weaving as Grace, like she has one of the all-time great screams. Mm. Can we start with that? Yeah. And yeah. it happens throughout the movie in a perfect, in a nice way. There's like a warble to it that is important. It's like a yodel or it's like the thing Xena used to do, <laughs> I feel like. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> There's so many like little things that I love. Like I love over the top gore to the point of comedy, which is what we reach ultimately I love it when characters have coherent motives, which people do here. Like the motives are very clear because they're like, listen, our family made a deal with a mysterious man named Mr. LaBelle generations ago. And he's the reason we have all the nice things we have. And you're like, mm, OK, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and also that the killers are like fighting and needling each other and fucking up the entire time and especially emily the sister who like arrives with some coke on her mm -hmm. i used to know what this thing is called between your nose and your mouth what is that is it your septum 
No. No. Oh, between your nose and your mouth. I don't know. Doesn't matter. It's a gross word. I can't remember it. But you know, on that part, your upper lip. Jesus Christ. There's another word. There's there's a <laughs> word for like this middle part, but it doesn't matter. But anyway, Emily shows up and like the running joke with her is that like she <laughs> is <laughs> they have like three hot servant girls who look like the band and the addicted to love video and the running <laughs> joke is that emily keeps accidentally killing them because she's like so incompetent and hopped up and it's like if there are mansions in this country which i'm not saying there are but if there are where people are hunted for sport we know that that's how it's going down <laughs> yeah definitely so I, I just talked about the movie Hatching, which is, I would recommend people watch. It's a good body horror, and it has like a lot of great creature effects stuff, and it doesn't nail what it's trying to say, because it's trying a little too hard to say it, but mm-hmm. like it makes up for it and all these other things. And I, the only reason I bring that up is because like, I think this movie ends up saying a lot by not trying too hard to say any of the things. And, you know, I mean, like on one level, like literally the last words of the movie are in-laws when asked what has happened to her. So like there's the whole piece about just like being in another person's family and having to integrate into another person's family and how that can be strange. And I have more than enough things to say about that. But then also just whatever commentary the cultists, I mean, you don't even have to actually call them Satanists, like, but mm-hmm. they are in this movie, but like the cultists that are essentially just like adherence to cutthroat capitalism mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point where like at some point she just yells, fucking rich people. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and while she's being pursued or while she's kind of like, while she's dealing with them, like the things that it ultimately ends up saying, again, like they don't try too hard to say any of these things and leave enough on screen for you to draw pretty evident and obvious and somehow not clumsy conclusions. You know, it's like very tidy in like what the movie is and what messages the movie delivers for a movie that if you describe to someone or even just like see on screen can feel like a bit over the top. Yeah, I feel like movies that are like playing one to one with an allegory you like miss the chance to have fun with the story and just to mm. kind of, oh, I rhymed that. That was good. And to see where <laughs> where things go. And like, I was thinking while watching this again yesterday about my grievance with Jigsaw. And I think I f- finally figured it out because Jigsaw's whole thing is like, I will cure you of your lack of appreciation for life by making you saw your own foot off or whatever. And then mm. like we see throughout the Saw franchise, like to its great credit that Jigsaw's method doesn't work and everyone who receives his death therapy appears to relapse in some kind of a spectacular way or just dedicate their lives to like helping him torture people, which doesn't really seem like something you would do if you're fully appreciating life. But I digress. But like, I think really that like what Jigsaw wants (laughs) and what we should do is like watch something scary happen Because, like, this is also a movie that does that thing I love where someone is, like, getting injured in great pain and yet just sort of, like, wrapping up their wounds and proceeding and, like, continuing to try to escape and to try and live and just, like, battling through so many awful things. And I think because it's a Sir Alex episode, we're going to talk about depression, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) And, like... You know what you're in for. You saw it was just Sarah and Alex. You, you know we're going to talk about depression. <laughs> Did, didn't you know all movies are about depression? <laughs> it is very meaningful for anyone with like any amount of depression in them to like watch a story where someone's like, no, fuck you. I am going to live. Fuck all you rich fucks. I'm going to make it. I'm going to live. I'm going to climb out of this goat pit. <laughs> and she like, you know, she ends up with the wounds of Christ and I love it when someone in a movie has the wounds of Christ. I love a little little Christian allegory. I'm like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it, and it ends in the, one of your favorite images, which is someone who started off, you know, pristine, mm-hmm. covered in not just blood, but covered in like dried, deep crimson to rust brown blood, which is... You know, the picture, I think of all of us generally living in the world Mm -hmm. as it is. But uh, to your point, especially those of us who live with uh, demons in their brains sometimes, I feel like that image 
is extraordinarily resonant. Yeah. If living day to day for whatever reason, and, you know, we're often talking about kind of like the reasons internally that might be the case, mentally that might be the case, baggage wise that might be the case. And you're like very aware of that and you have a relationship with that. And and a lot of people surrounding you appear not to be dealing with that in one way or another. Like it can for sure feel like survival is absolutely important. You want to proceed, but you just feel fucking sticky and gross <laughs> yeah <laughs> with the remains of the day on you <laughs> i think she ends up more covered in blood than anyone in anything except for the descent yeah which i would argue is a different category because she just falls into like a giant pool of blood that they have in that cave for some reason they just like haven't cleaned up in like hundreds of years <laughs> yeah she ends up covered in blood and also in like bits because yeah. To just go ahead and tell you what happens in the ending, like if you want the ending to be a surprise, then like pause this right now and go watch Ready or Not, and this is your chance. <laughs> okay, great, you're back. So, <laughs> so in the end, I really like. There's also like there's lots of little twists in this movie, and they don't feel forced to me. I'm not a huge twist person, but like you just kind of have these shifting allegiances of like who's on her side, who's acting like they're on her side who thinks they're able to be on her side, but then is like, actually, no, I don't want to risk it. Because basically the family is like, listen, Mr. LaBelle has told us to kill Grace at dawn. And if we don't, then like, we're all going to die. It's happened to other people in our family. And through the night, they're debating like, is that really going to happen? Is this just a superstition? Like, is this real? And so we get to the sacrifice scene where she basically, through sheer will to live pretty much manages to like i think dig her nails into the hands of one of the people who's holding her down and then like twist away from the knife at the last second mm. and take it in the shoulder and then like get up and do the banshee scream at everybody and then they whip back the curtains and it's already morning and it's like oh like maybe the curse is bullshit and i the first time i watched it i was like oh this is a great ending because it's like you know the real monsters are us when we're behaving guided by superstition that's a great message you love it and then the aunt who i forgot to mention who's quite intense like picks up an axe and is like the girl still dies and she's running toward grace and then she explodes and then everybody starts exploding and i was like yeah this is a better ending <laughs> yeah well because you get both endings yeah right at the point where like typically that sort of thing would just like happen and that would be the surprise like it gives you three beats to sit in both endings which is really fascinating like that's a really great move and to the point of where this does play as like an allegory for capitalism because again like she's trying to figure out how to describe what the family is like a board game empire and he counters oh, yeah. with like board was it like board game dominion dynasty something? dynasty that's yeah it. like on the show dynasty where everyone always had a great time <laughs> yeah <laughs> And their family dynamics were huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like speaking to the capitalism allegory thing, you know, it, it also feels like it serves on both levels where it's like, yes, it is kind of like the inborn internalized pressures that like make people the bad people, but also like maybe it is an evil force. <laughs> Maybe it is literally an evil force that, right. that possesses us. And whether or not it is, it seems to have the same effect on a lot of people. So there you go. Right. And like, if you're going to marry into a board game dynasty family, even if they're not Satanists, then like, how do they make these board games? Are people forced to work on the board game assembly line until they pass out? <laughs> Is the help extremely disposable to the point where like, just like minor mistakes in your family lead to them getting shot in the mouth with a crossbow? Like, that's... <laughs> You know? To be fair, that was an accident, but yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. <laughs> yes. Yes, to be fair, that was an accident. But, you know, remember, just like... But that's they're... the point. The accidents of rich people are... I mean, Because exactly. like I feel like the whole Kennedy curse, it's like, are they cursed or should they just do less outdoors? Yeah, you're like clumsy people shouldn't have a lot of power. You're looking at me as you're saying that. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just like I know. Screen. Well, you have to be. We're on a Skype call. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But yeah, I mean, it's the classic Great Gatsby line about careless people, right? And mm. Jordan Baker being like, it's fine for me to drive my motor car very fast around because I don't have to be careful because there will always be someone else careful around me to balance things out. And it's like, oh, okay, got that figured out. <laughs> A book that famously ends in a car accident. Then there's this whole other piece where it's like if you're just taking what's going on literally in the movie where it's again just like the difficulties of integrating into another person's family. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It resonates on a number of levels because I've, you know, I've been in relationships where I've really gotten along with the partner or had a good thing with the partner and then did not get along with the family. I've had relationships where I didn't necessarily get along with the partner, but I absolutely got along with the family. I was that kid also that like, I don't know if this is going to resonate. This will resonate with somebody who's listening, I'm sure. But I was that kid who like would go... Were you the neighbor kid from Home Alone? No, no, I was like the kid in watching this this time when she's describing to Andy McDowell that she didn't she was in foster families and mm -hmm. that she, all she wanted was like a permanent and forever family. And like, you know, it feels a little kind of like Eli Cash, although not so smarmy and in the Royal Tenenbaums like that plight resonated with me because like my family was, you know, not huge and dysfunctional mm -hmm. in the ways that it was and stuff. And so like I'd be the kid who'd go over to someone else's house to the kid's house and then just like want to talk to their parents parents yep. and like kind of be accepted and loved by the entire family to the point where I'm sure it kind of like probably drove some fucking people crazy. They're like, shouldn't you just be playing with your friend and not <laughs> talking to us at whatever level that you're talking to us right now? <laughs> that was so resonant. So just like this idea of like how we integrate with other families and then in particular how we integrate with in-laws i saw a lot going on in there yeah and i guess i don't know i feel like maybe there's something baseline very appealing about like a very realistic situation based on a real horror which is like in-laws are scary marrying into a family can be pretty intense like even if they're great there's going to be some kind of a learning curve mm -hmm. you know you have to learn their ways and like also, like, functional families are pretty scary. Like, don't you find them, like, <laughs> creepy when you meet a family where they're not... I'm not naming names, but, like, I've spent time at, like, family functions of people. Okay, it's Patrick, who, like, all clearly <laughs> love each other and are not, like, on tenterhooks, all feeling like they're one minute away from, like, causing a giant bust up at any time. And I'm just like, this is weird. This is a weird totally. sensation. <laughs> totally. I don't know, like, the picture of my anxiety is the fucking standoff at the end of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Everyone has a gun drawn at each other. Like, if one person's, you know, emotional regulation goes yeah. just, like, slightly out of pitch, everyone's going to end <laughs> up dead. <laughs> like, that's, I kind of sometimes constantly feel like that because of how my house felt. Yeah. And so, especially when I get into situations like that where everyone does sort of, like, unequivocally love each other, there isn't, like, layers of shit going on. It seems to be all text and the text is good mm -hmm. i can't process it i yeah. cannot process it you're like what am i missing then it sends my anxiety into even higher overdrive because i'm waiting for this shoe to drop that no one knows about yeah so i'm like oh god not only is a shoe gonna drop i'm the only person who's gonna see it happening and you guys aren't gonna see it so someone needs to be able to handle this shit and what a fucking crazy way to feel and be but i like that you know this <laughs> This movie's built for me because you get in and realize uh, that she was going to drop the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking about this when I was watching The Family Stone. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. I mean, my issue with it when I remember watching it is that it feels like one of those movies where it's like, we're crazy, but we're a family. We're dysfunctional, but we all love each other. La, la, la. And then it's yeah. just like wall to wall, like fighting and sniping and like Sarah yes. Jessica Parker <laughs> making everyone uncomfortable. And I'm like, stop. I want to either watch people having a great time or murdering each other. Those are my needs <laughs> at Christmas. And um, <laughs> oh, my God. Never watch This Is Us. Oh, uh, no, I have not. It's, like, uh -uh. it's like a family stone made into like a four season show, basically. Although it does have Dominic Dunn. So, I mean, not Dominic oh. Dunn. That would be amazing. It would be amazing Griffin if Dominic Dunn. Dunn was in that movie. <laughs> the ghost of Dominic Dunn just <laughs> wanders in and starts <laughs> taking notes. <laughs> it's funny. So I have had also a grudge against This Is Us since 
one of the actresses in it was in a really stupid movie that was advertised heavily around Nashville when I was visiting you there three years ago, which is like, you know, when like something normal happens to a Christian <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God, this is proof that Jesus specifically saved my child oh, and yeah. not all the other children in the hospital. Didn't you see this movie in the theater? No, I saw Unplanned in the theater, which oh, is okay. the movie by the woman who left her job at Planned Parenthood and decided to take them down. <laughs> I remember you saw it because you brought back a half-eaten bag of Flamin' Hut Cheetos popcorn. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I just was like, I am nauseated on many levels. I'm going to go lie down. <laughs> sorry to derail all that. I'm sorry. No, so you know, she was in one of those Christian this propaganda is all connected, movies. Right. And this was a movie about like her character's son falls through the ice. And then the doctors are like, he's not going to make it. And then they're like, oh, actually, like, because I think this is what happens because the water was so cold. He was like, I don't know, something special happened and he's going to make it. And they're like, oh, cool. It's Jesus. And it's just like, I don't know. It really, <laughs> it's funny because like, I'm not one of those people who's like God or whoever has nothing to do with our lives, la la la, because I'm the kind of superstitious person who's like, oh, Spotify has like chosen this song to play for me. What does it mean? So like, I'm at least a little stitious. Mm -hmm. Like I do like <laughs> thinking that I'm being told things and shown things that I need to see. Like, I don't not believe in that. I just think that when it gets to the point of like, Jesus himself, like took mercy on my specific white middle class child over all the other kids in this hospital with like gunshot wounds. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mm, <laughs> I don't like this Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I've only seen one like Christian propaganda movie that I feel like did everything elegantly. And it was called Soul Surfer. Do you, have you ever seen this movie? Oh, I haven't seen that in one. I remember this girl because she, my family left Oahu like right before they started having, I think actually a normal number of shark attacks, but what in the news was being reported yeah. is more than usual. And I was like, see, I was in danger that whole time. And then the girl in Soul Surfer lost her arm to a shark. Yeah, so they made a movie of it, and I'm watching it because a family member was into it. I just want to qualify that, that I was. <laughs> Alex, that's okay. You can watch Soul Surfer if you want to. You can watch anything you want, but like being a middle-aged man and being like, so I watched <laughs> this movie about three teenage girl surfers. <laughs> it's like, all right, all right, guy. But... So the second I saw Kevin Sorbo's name mm -hmm. come on the screen, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to Google this real fast and just see what the ideology is. I'm like, oh, he's not Hercules anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. Every time Kevin shows up, I'm like, okay, this movie's doing a thing, I feel like. <laughs> and, you know, in that movie, it was like, whoever the propagandists were behind <laughs> that one were smart because they were like, we'll just have some background praying. We'll show that she goes to church, but we're not going to have any big one-to-one Jesus saved my arm moment. Because Jesus didn't. Jesus took that arm. <laughs> no, you got strength from your faith, mm -hmm. which is a thing I can buy into. Right. I can absolutely buy into that. But like when it's like, God, to your point, like there's a hundred kids in this hospital right now with horrendous malady. You have a horrendous malady too, but like he didn't pick you over someone else. That's just not how it works. Um. <laughs> That's like a very particular God that I just do not like. This God is like very triggered by a lot of tiny stuff. <laughs> exactly. If he did, if he did, or it, if God, if the thing, if it, the entity did, you'd be describing basically a God that has the personality of Steve Buscemi in Fargo. Like that's <laughs> the God. <laughs> Like a, like a terrified chihuahua with a gun. <laughs> I do think that's what people are picturing. Because like, do you, it's like this idea that God is like, oh, no, like the cashiers don't say Merry Christmas. They say Happy Holidays. I'm very upset. It's like God has bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Pew, pew. Uh, yeah, exactly. Anyway, <laughs> we were talking about Ready or Not. We were at some point. Yeah. And uh, Samara Weaving is a really fantastic actress. Mm -hmm. uh, not just in her portrayal of the final girl, but like the parts where she is delivering some background on her character here through talking about where she's been are very touching. I got very cryy a little bit in some of these parts this time. Yeah. Because they're resonant. And again, like I had relationships with families through my relationships that 
I wanted like nothing more than to be accepted by the people because I thought that they were cool and I thought that they were interesting. And like with at least one of the families, there was like very strange class baggage and I was not you know, up to snuff for their baby. And so that whole piece about feeling like you want to belong in a place despite all of your baggage and all of your fears of abandonment and all of those things, wanting it and then it just still not clicking because of the just like pre-existing unmovable dynamics. Yeah. And also which may reveal that like they don't deserve you. Yeah. Which is a hard concept to believe. Well, because then you got to think that you're worthy too. And that's a hard place to get to. And that's just, (laughs) that's a tough one. This also reminds me of a great marriage and joining a family movie while you were sleeping. I almost said sleepless in Seattle. Big sleep boom in the early 90s. Everyone was taking naps. Yes. (laughs) People were fucking tired. And just the part where Sandra Bullock's boss is like, Lucy, you are born into a family. You do not just join them like you do the Marines. And it's like, Mm. well... Some of us do. (laughs) Some of us have to. We were born into the the wrong spot sometimes. (laughs) I was talking to my mom the other day about the Lost City. She was like, you've got to see the Lost City, the apartment, the book tour. And then she recommended nothing else about it. And I was like, oh, well, that's reason enough. We both love real estate. And then we were talking about Sandra Bullock for some reason. And I mentioned that, like, she has to be almost 60. And my mom was like, really? No. Is she? And I was like, well, she was almost 30 in Speed and Speed came out almost 30 years ago. So like, yeah, sorry. To, and then I looked it up and I was like, Sandra Bullock is a hot and ready 57. Yep. And my mom was like, then why is she in rom-coms? And I was like, mother, <laughs> I will probably need to be in a rom-com when I'm 57, like at least emotionally, not a literal one. But like, I will need to go on some kind of a book tour with whoever is Channing Tatum at the time. And I needed to be on board for that preemptively. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting, too, right? Like Sandra Bullock is the same age. I imagine I could be wrong, but Sandra Bullock's the same age Diane Keaton was in like Something's got to give and stuff. Yeah, of like 90s Diane Keaton, older lady finds love movies. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Wow. But Diane Keaton, like, I mean, this is like another interesting thing, too. And this is like a generational shift that like it used to be that at a certain age and often in the past when you were like 35, you would be like, well, I'm an old lady now trying to dress like an old lady. And it turns out that a lot of that is just wardrobe choices and like costuming. (laughs) Like you just kind of, you can become an old lady whenever you want. (laughs) This is true. This is definitely true. They thought they had to signal like that this is a person who is feeling their age. There's a nice line in uh, Nora Ephron's book, I Feel Bad About My Neck, about like how hair dye changed everything Mm -hmm. and how like now women in their 60s all dye their hair and they never used to. And she mentions like she was at a luncheon for... Gene Harris, who had just been released from prison after killing the Scarsdale diet doctor. And I think it was that she was the only woman at the table who didn't have dyed hair, and it was because she had just been in prison. So presumably that was her next hmm. stop after lunch. Oh, <laughs> uh, fucking Nora. We love you. Annie McDowell, also in this. I love her in this movie. Speaking of like, Hot and ready women in their late 50s, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about Andy McDowell's character in this movie? So also an interesting note is that Andy McDowell is one of three Americans in the principal cast because they filmed this in Canada. And unlike a lot of movies where all the main characters who do anything of consequence are American, and then you got these like really Canadian like cashiers and stuff. It's like wall-to-wall Canadians in this, except for Annie McDowell, Samara Weaving, who's Australian, and Adrian Brody. Adam. Adam Brody. Oh, Adrian Brody jumped Tally Berry of the Oscars. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I totally forgot that that happened. <laughs> yeah, it sure did. And everyone was like, wow, what a heroic moment for this man who just jumped an unsuspecting woman at the Oscars. This is great. And they were like, what a wonderful Oscar moment. <laughs> so like i don't know that does make me feel like culture is progressing slightly while also going backwards at the same time 
Isn't that such a fucking strange thing? It's like it feels like all progress is in parentheses. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like in an algebra equation? Yeah, exa- exactly. They're like we hit the progress <laughs> in this worst series of things that's happening around it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like people are in real, like in the context of the Depp Heard case, right? Like people are going like part of this conversation should be how the coverage of the case is. And it's like, yes, that's fantastic. And also abortion's illegal. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, fast approaching. Yeah. Yes. Again, it's like all these like pieces of cognitive cultural evolution. By the way, listener, if I sound slower than normal, I'm on day five of COVID and it really fuzzed my brain up a little bit. You're really burying the lead that you're heroically continuing to do a movie podcast while having COVID. (laughs) That's kind of the headline here. Local hero. (laughs) We can run through the list of 17 movies I've watched in the past five days, but I can't quite wrap my head just like imagining explaining, like I often do imagining explaining stuff to my 15 year old self being like, look, we're going to make some really just incredible progress in the way we think about things culturally that seem like alien to your moment right now, Mm -hmm. 15 year old Alex in 1998 or whatever. And also there's a lot of backsliding around it. (laughs) It's, I can't, it really does underscore how progress in whatever form happens in very nonlinear way. Yeah. I hate group chats, but I do have a group chat with two of my friends from high school, and it is largely confined to sending each other our Wordle and Worldle results <laughs> each day, which is really nice. And one of the things that came up on the chat this morning was like the concept of the liberal snowflake. And I was like, yeah, I really like my theory is that like, this is all projection, you know, that like, yeah, like liberals and lefties, like sometimes that's fitting, like there's some behavior that I can see sort of fitting with that label. But like, for the most part, overwhelmingly so, I think that everything is projection and that really it's about conservatives in America getting increasingly, to use their language, triggered about literally everything. And I always think Mm -hmm. about the time that the sheriff of Milwaukee County, whose name I forget, but used to wear a cowboy hat around, probably still is wherever he is right now. (laughs) He was at an airport in like Dallas or something. And a guy at his gate, I think, like asked if he was the sheriff of Milwaukee County. And he was like, yes, I am. And then the guy apparently like looked at him weird and then they like took the plane to Milwaukee and then the sheriff detained the guy at the airport for looking at him funny. And like, this is not the behavior of a secure person. It's just not. And like none of what's happening politically over here is, you know, it's just it feels like just the amount of like sensitivity and fear and like need to have everything exactly the way you want it. It's like the behavior of a toddler who's gotten their Playmobil set up correctly finally and then you like breathe on it and then like all their equilibrium like vanishes in a moment and it's like okay you're a toddler you probably need to eat or sleep (laughs) or you're overstimulated but when adults do it and turn it into policy you're like i just i don't know what to do about this no totally it's one of those things where it's like when you know that that's the case you're like how the fuck do you even address this? And how do you live? What is your life like? What is it like to be this chronically dysregulated? And I say this as someone who's like sent over the edge by tiny things constantly, but I don't (laughs) think it's like a political matter. Yeah. I mean, down to like the Southern Baptist Convention Mm -hmm. and the kids. And then obviously it's the left that's corrupting the kids, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know, Sarah. I don't know either, Alex. How do we fix this country of ours? <laughs> Buckle up. Watch more horror movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I love Adam Brody in this movie. I love Adam Brody, who I had no context for because I didn't watch the OC. But anytime he comes up, someone says Adam Brody from the OC. The OC was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I, I missed it fully. I missed the whole thing. I don't know. You were just slightly too old for it. I think there's a period where you're like too old for teen shows, but you're not old enough to like double back and watch them anyway. It's like the years between 18 and 24 or something. Yeah, I think that's exactly right on. And that's the age that I was I was at. But I just saw him in the movie Kid Detective, which is a movie that uh, unfortunately came out just like minutes after the pandemic had started. And so it was one of those ones that got buried, but it was great. And he plays like Encyclopedia Brown. So he's like a Tenenbaum. Yeah, exactly. 
It sets up like a great little kid detective agency. He's 12 or 13, not Adam Brody yet. He will be Adam Brody later. <laughs> is celebrated as being great. And then like in the Royal Tenenbaums, becomes an adult. And there's a huge disconnect between how he was remembered or how he was at one time with like mm. how he feels now and what his successes are now. And uh, Adam Brody's ability to convey that ennui, in ennui, the ennui, <laughs> just like the daunted nature of having to figure out what makes you special now mm. throughout an entire movie was spectacular. And that movie also for a movie that starts cute, it's like if the Royal Tenenbaums was cute in Twee the way that it was the entire time, but there were also some murders involved. That happens in this, and I like it. It's amazing there haven't, have there been any murders in Wes Anderson movies? There have to have been, right? At least in the Grand Budapest Hotel. There have been plenty of deaths, but right. I don't know about murders. Huh, just seems like that's inevitable to work around to. Yeah. <laughs> but I highly recommend spending time with Adam Brody in either of these two formats. Yeah. Fuck Adrian Brody. Go, skip the rest. <laughs> go to the best Brody. And then the best fictional Brody is Brody from Jaws, obviously. I'm sure Adam Brody would be very so happy to hear that. He's like, I just never hear that. So thanks. Yeah. Adam, you're the best Brody. We love you. In this house, we stand Adam Brody. Thanks for not jumping Holly Berry at the Oscars. Yeah. If you want to celebrate a moment of victory by, like, kissing a woman unexpectedly without her permission, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't. Just, yeah. like, do one, one of these. Just do, like, the bender at the end of the breakfast club. Do a high five. It's much more endearing. Yeah. Especially, like, in a public set. I mean, I'm not suggesting it any, any setting, right. obviously. But, but just, like, what a but bullshit. Like, during a live <laughs> telecast. Yeah. And you're like, everything about how I've lived my life and how life is lived for everyone so far suggests that this will be accepted warmly. And it was. It was. I remember it. this was, I mean, the way, now I feel like I should do a, some kind of a podcast episode about this. But the way it was covered in the news, I mean, I'm, sh I'm sure there was like stuff that I wasn't encountering as a 14 year old or whatever age I was. But like the Oscars loves to have iconic moments. Yes. That aren't about assault. And we didn't recognize this as being that at the time. Yes. And so it was just like, what a wonderful victory for this amazing man. <laughs> Look how happy he is. Totally. I, so a thing that you kind of have to realize, too, for people who are younger, and I'm not, again, it's not justification, but the thing you have to realize younger is before we were on the internet all the time, things that happened on TV that fell out of the element could be talked about. Could, they could just happen and then be talked about for like weeks mm -hmm. because it would be weeks until we saw another <laughs> bananas pants thing that happened. And so it wasn't like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene was around every 10 minutes talking about how she was going to shoot a Democratic baby in the face. Like <laughs> that, it wasn't like that. We didn't have that. So we had to wait for these spontaneous moments mm -hmm. that everyone celebrated, like um, Roberta Benini walking around on the chairs of the Oscars. Yep. That was a big deal. It was a huge, huge deal. Ving Rhames giving his, I think he gave an Oscar to Jack Lemmon. He just gave his Oscar to Jack Lemmon. Really? Didn't that happen? Yeah. I remember that Oscars, right? Because didn't Jack Lemmon win a Lifetime Achievement Award or something? And it was like, oh, he's never won a real one. I'm making that up. Could have happened. Maybe. I don't know. I think Ving Rhames gave his Oscar away to, or dedicated, I don't know. It was, it was lovely, lovely times. These lovely things happened. And then this happened and we weren't having a nuanced conversation because podcasts didn't exist yet. And, <laughs> and that's the only reason we learned to have nuanced that's conversations. That's the only reason. It's the only reason we came around. We're only doing it to kill time. Yeah. We came around in this. And then since now podcast exists, now look at what happens at the Oscars. People get punched in the face. <laughs> And then in 2005, I think Crash won Best Picture and I have never again watched the Oscars because I was so devastated because I was like, <laughs> I was sure I was positive that Brokeback Mountain would win. I knew it in my heart. I knew it in my bones and it didn't happen. And I lost the ability to believe, which is probably good because they don't even have to watch those movies that they're voting on. No. No, they don't. They just have to see the biggest spread and variety and uh, vote accordingly. <laughs> yeah. And they could have done what a lot of older men did when I went to the theater repeatedly to see Brokeback Mountain when it was out, which is get really uncomfortable with the first like reach around scene like 15 minutes in and storm out. Oh, wow. Really? Oh, yeah. I still remember that. 
Man, the only time I've seen people walk out of a thing was um, the Jesus movie, Mel Gibson Jesus. Oh, yeah. I mean, that I haven't seen that one, but that looks, you know, really unpleasant. And I say this as someone who is just rhapsodizing about Samara Weaving having to like bloodily battle through the night for survival. It's just, you know, it's different. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. What do you think? What's your pitch for somebody watching Ready or Not? Mm. I would recommend it to people who are not particularly horror fans or not self-identified horror fans. And this is another movie that I bet, I bet some of you right now are trying to be like, it's not horror, it's a comedy. It's a horror comedy. It's a comedy. And it's like, bitch, it's a horror movie. I am so (laughs) tired of people trying to exclude movies from being horror just because they happen to be good. Alien is a horror movie. It doesn't matter that it happens in space. It's about being trapped in a confined space with a fucking alien. It's essentially a haunted house movie it's horror. And this is like, it's wobbly. Like we could argue about certain margin calls, but like, I think people think that if a movie rises above a certain very low level of quality, it stops being horror. Mm. And I, I don't think that's true. And so, yeah, I would recommend this for people who don't typically seek out horror because I think it takes the hallmarks of the slasher, which I love as a subgenre and I think is so durable because there is something about the structure of like person who doesn't understand the situation goes to a specific location where something bad happened a long time ago or where there's some kind of a history and has to somehow survive the night. And also this idea of like, what do you have to do to become capable of survival? Because that's another journey that this character goes on that I love watching. Like, this is a moment that I love, actually. There's like a part where basically they've been married. We've skipped over the whole wedding because who cares? And then they're... <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's just like, <laughs> wedding starts, wedding's over. Perfect. Yep. You've seen weddings yeah. before. Fuck it. Too expensive to show. Too many extras. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Saved half a million dollars. Easy. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And it's like, we all, we know what happens in a wedding. It's, we did not need to see that. And so... We cut to Grace and Alex like going back to their room and like getting ready for the wedding night. And Alex is like, oh, hey, actually, there's something I didn't tell you. We all have to go down and play a game. And so Grace like just is like, so give me 10 minutes because I'm going to get my game face on. And then she like does a little dance. It's like two two seconds. This two seconds of like this little dance she does, this little shimmy. And to me, like that moment is so important and like the performing of it and the keeping it in kind of communicates to me that like everybody understands what this character is about. She's not just sort of a template of like human woman or like human woman not having sex variety, which like historically does tend to correlate with surviving that she's like this, you know, she gets to establish herself pretty quickly as being like this pretty real feeling, like sincere, fun, playful, funny, profane, like very recognizable, like real feeling human being. And then continues to respond like a recognizable human being throughout this, including also a moment where she like gets sort of kitted out with a weapon and I think a bandolier. And then we like pan up from her Mm. feet to her face and she goes like, fuck, (laughs) which like (laughs) any of us would do in that situation would be like, fuck, I'm wearing a fucking bandolier. (laughs) But characters in horror movies tend to take it in stride and they're like lock and load or whatever and then watching her progress over time into someone who has to violently defend herself and you know i won't spoil exactly how that goes because i've spoiled everything else but just like watching that character evolution it just feels very real and i just think horror like can showcase wonderful acting and is a place where women get to carry movies more than in other genres because they're cheap let a woman do it who cares as opposed to i guess a big studio fixture which is like what do we think about women have we focus grouped women sufficiently how are how are women doing in the middle part of the country do they like women people seem to hate women should we nix the women you know it's like black widow had to wait for what like 40 years to get her own movie (laughs) and just you know that's my sell is that it contains the bones of the slasher and yet 
it doesn't have any of the pitfall. Like, I would not necessarily recommend Friday the 13th to anyone who doesn't particularly like horror already if they hadn't seen it somehow, because it's slow, it lags. There's like really like the last 25 minutes are just like they seem to be killing time to reach feature length. You know, it's like it's a gem and I love it. But like there are things about it that make it a little bit hard to love and like this movie is easy to love and I would try and convert people to the genre with this as like a gateway drug. Yeah. Speaking of some of the things that we were talking about earlier, where it's like walking through life with whatever you've got going on or say walking through life in a post-capitalist wasteland or, or whatever, walking through life, walking through Nashville, you say walking through Nashville, walking through whatever challenges are ahead. This is a beautiful reminder, you know, visually. And again, it's a lot of fun, but like visually that like, I think a thing that we often, I don't know, it's so obvious, but I think a lot of times we dismiss it or try to hope it out of existence or reality is that like survival and growth are going to hurt. And often people will be like, well, I can't do this. You know, it's like, oh, I want to do this, but I can't because this is going to happen. Or it's like, yes, like I forget exactly what it says, but like the very first thing we see in the movie is like the slogan of the family game empire. And then it says gaming dynasty. Yeah, yes. And then it says something about risk and reward, like Mm. he who takes the risk gets the reward. And I think that like, especially in like conversations about personal growth, conversations about like collective growth, conversations about activism, like people are constantly internalizing this idea. I think largely anyone who lived through the 90s <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. live, are like, well, it's, you know, I'm trying to do everything I can, but like not spill any blood. I say that figuratively, right. obviously, but like you can't, you're not going to get right. to the other side without spilling blood Yeah, or getting some blood on you, <laughs> getting some exploded yep. gaming dynasty family bits on your body. Like it's not going to happen. And so you have to, reset your relationship with the anticipation of that pain and with pain generally in order to get to the other side. Yeah. I don't want to. I know, right? But I will. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> but you get to wear a bandolier. That's true. And yellow chucks. Yeah. Sometimes people are going to explode at you and get all their viscera all over you and you have to just be like, fuck. <laughs> And also this movie shows the devil. Like it really like if you're gonna it. be about the devil, then like show me the devil. Totally. It's just like a guy who tips his hat. I love him. I love it. Yeah, he's he's a dapper little gen. <laughs> he has rules. What oh my god, speaking of rules, one of my favorite lines mm-hmm. is what's the CIA daddy's name? His character's name is Tony, which is really weird. The name of my new cat. Tony. Um, He says while he realizes that he's about to explode because he's seen people explode around him, he yells, I did everything right. I played by the rules. I'm in control, which is like, which is actually it's like if the projection you talked about earlier could talk. Yeah. And say a thing, that's what it would say, right? It's like the ruling class belief, like that's an Elon Musk thing to say, right? Like the ruling class belief that like, you know, because actually all of the structure is built around serving them all the time. There is a belief that like there's an untouchability if you just kind of like do the things that you're supposed to do. And it's really, really, really beautiful. And that like two seconds where you see him realize that, you know, the rules of inevitability apply to him as well. Yeah, that's something I'd love to see Elon tweet someday. <laughs> You know, before he's met by the devil. Ah, that'll be nice. (laughs) Elon, get out of my life. (laughs) What's your favorite splatter gore moment in this movie? Oh, great one. Okay, so like, there is... A really intense scene, which I've heard other people who are also fans of this movie be like, oh, yeah, I thought that scene was really funny. It was so over the top. And I can see that. But also, like, I thrive on over the top sort of serious gore, I guess, or on interpreting it that way. So basically, there's a sequence where she is Grace has escaped to the barn. One of Emily's two shitty little kids who, by the way, there's like a little cutaway where like one of the maids is reading to the little boys as like the family murder is going down. 
And I looked up what she's reading, and it's from Paradise Lost, obviously, which is great. <laughs> so the full quote, what we hear is, terrain is worth ambition. And the full line is, terrain is worth ambition, though in hell. Better terrain in hell than serve in heaven. Which, I don't know, I love that. I love it when just people are reading Milton in a horror movie. It's great. <laughs> but anyway, so she has gone out to the barn and been chased by one of Emily's shitty little kids and there's a moment where you're like oh he's an innocent child he won't want to kill her she's kind of trying to appeal to him and then he shoots her and also everyone in this movie has terrible aim because they're not shooting skeet often enough i guess which i assume is how rich people stay in practice and so he shoots her through the palm which mm. is like a very specific something you don't think about very much is like ugh. like i love anything in a movie not anything, but a lot of things in horror movies that are sort of like wounds or maimings that make you go, ah, and just like make your whole body like clench. You're just like, mm. like, I love that. It's such a, it's like the one time in my day when I'm not anxious about my life is when I'm going, ugh. Um, <laughs> and you're just, your whole body tenses up. And then basically she falls backwards into the pit that it turns out is where they have just been chucking all their victims over the years. Like these people are very lazy and they're yes. not concerned about getting caught. They're just like, oh, throw another body in the pit. Don't bother doing anything else with it. It'll be fine. <laughs> And so she falls into this horrible, like, Indiana Jones pit of the victims of the rich and then has to, like, climb out. So she's climbing up on this ladder. Obviously, the ladder breaks. And then she's, like, hanging with her good hand, like, on this leg, hanging into the goat pit. We know she's going to have to, like, use her bad hand to try and get up. Just the whole sequencing of it is beautiful. Like, you're just in such a prolonged state of, like, tension and discomfort. You're just like, oh, oh God. It's very satisfying to me to get all, like, squinched up and tense and then to have a release a minute or two later. But basically, she's like, okay, I'm going to do it. And so she swings up her bad hand and, like, basically pushes it down exactly where there happens to be a nail protruding and like <laughs> the scream like the cut like just thinking like imagining the pain of that you're yeah. just like ah nothing else in my life is real my brain is getting a break from being tormented by its own demons because this is so unpleasant ah. <laughs> it's such a pure feeling and then she's able to haul herself up and like wrap up the hand and kind of go on to the next thing. But like that sequence is just everything to me. I love it. And I hope I've explained it in a way that makes it make sense. I think you have. And it's a beautiful sound sequence as well. Yeah. The collection and sequence of sounds is really great. To the point that you're talking about with them being lazy about their literal body count, like this pile of bodies that they have. Like, doesn't that seem so real? Like, yes. The thing that is about what's the guy's name who hung himself in prison or maybe who knows or um, maybe not uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, epstein epstein like it seems like based on anything i'd ever read about that case or anything that came out of how do we say gillane gillane yeah yeah everyone says it a little differently it's kind of cute based on all of that like it seems like their ideology is the same ideology as the of the families which is like as long as everyone's on the employ or a woman <laughs> No one is going to believe this. No mm -hmm. one's going to believe that this happened. Like, we're not going to be able to be touched. And to be fair, that worked for apparently decades. So it worked to the point where you have multiple presidents who just were in and out with this dude. And people are just like, yeah, well, that's, you know, shit happens. Powerful people know each other. Yeah, it seems so real. Like on some level, I remember first watching this movie and being like, oh, they just have the like, what if someone investigates the bodies? And it's like, they won't. They just won't. They just won't. That's not going to happen. Like you'll call the police your one time to be able to call the police and they will have the opportunity to intervene in some way as happens in this movie. Like that's how power structures work, unfortunately. Right. And that, you know, the illegality of what you do is based largely on your income, it appears. I also love, we haven't mentioned, there's this amazing little moment where there's also this whole thing with Stevens, the butler, who's like, I would love to love anything as much as Stevens loves the 1812 overture. And she manages to like escape at one point in a car and then calls the like fake version of OnStar in this movie 
and gets a guy named Justin who's like, I'm sorry, ma'am. Policy says that I have to shut down this vehicle because it's been stolen. And she's just like, Justin, call the fucking police. They're trying to kill me. And he's like, I'm sorry. My hands are tied. Thank you for using (laughs) fake OnStar. And like that feels incredibly real, too, that like if you escape the clutches of these people, you will encounter either police who don't believe you or don't care or just bureaucracy, which cares about no one. Right, right. Or capitalism itself in this case. Yeah, exactly. There was a tweet going around recently of a person in a Tesla and the Tesla was on fire. Sorry, this is so Elon centric, but obviously it's going to be with the subject matter. How could it not be? And the Tesla was on fire and apparently like they were trying to figure out how to get out of the Tesla, but you can't get out because the way the door handles work and like the system wasn't quite working. So the person was like trapped. They eventually got out. Someone got them out of the car or whatever. But it's one of those things where it's like, it feels like that scene a little bit where it's like, you know, it just seems like the obvious thing would be for the cops to help out because that's how we know things to work. But no, there are like all of these weird, both like structural inconveniences and a haphazard pieces of bureaucracy and bad design that are as in the way of your survival as anything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's also, I mean, just the, not to bring in too many current events, but let's go for it. After the recent school shooting in Texas and the way the police behaved, which was essentially to be like, mm, let's keep waiting around and macing parents instead of going mm. in and trying to do anything about this gunman. It's like, wow. So like the one thing that you say we should keep you around for, you refuse to do. It's like if I was a terrible roommate, you know, and I kept murdering all your friends and everything. And you're like, well, she doesn't make great bread pudding. And then you asked me to make bread pudding one day and I had no idea how to make bread pudding. It's like, what? Why are you here? That's actually the story of like a lot of consultants. Who is the consultant in this metaphor? Oh, it's like, it's like, always, it's like, we hire you to be around just in case, right? Just in case the bad thing happens, just in case. And then eventually the bad thing happens and you're like, wait, you've never done this before? Are you fucking serious? <laughs> you like refuse to even try? Like what, what is, why, why? Like we need to make some cutbacks and it's either cancel Netflix or cancel the police. And I think you should be the police and also Netflix. They're gouging people. <laughs> yeah. And they seem to just get rid of all of their queer creators and creators of color all the time. It seems like a weird, weird business model. Anyway, we've really been across. We've gone up. We've gone down. We've gone over. That's what always happens. We've gone in. We've gone out. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite little gore moment wrapping this up? Gore daddy. Oh God, just the, I mean, it's, I love the scene that you described. It's really satisfying as, as a sequence goes. I just love, man, the explosions are so great. Yeah. The pacing and the design of the action in this movie is fantastic. And what, that's kind of what you were speaking to with regard to the scene with the nail through the hand is the setup and the delivery. It's all beautiful. And then again, once we realize that there really is a curse and we see the aunt explode. And then the ways we see other people go that allows for them to be kind of sometimes their most themselves mm-hmm. right before they go. And the movie does you the favor of not having to watch children die. So it has these two kids run out with their mother. And then you see basically three explosions one after another just like enter the room Mm -hmm. so like you see these like little storms of blood and gross come into the room that you know are them all of the choices in that scene and then just like all of the blood and all of the ick is beautiful it was beautifully constructed and beautifully executed for something that's so grisly it was a great deal of fun and then it and then because of that scene and because of everything that's happened in the movie to the point it culminates in an image that probably maybe more people have seen just because of memes generally than have seen the movie which is we have samara Mm -hmm. weaving at the end covered in blood with a house burning behind her dragging on a cigarette which, you know, is a beautiful image to use if you're trying to convey any number of feelings. <laughs> I also like how this and Heather's, like in this one, her boyfriend explodes, yeah. or in Heather's, she has an exploding boyfriend rather than a whole building exploding behind her. But like how these are both movies that culminate in someone being like, 
think I want to break up and then everything exploding and then calmly smoking a cigarette. Yeah, that's oh, God. Yeah, that's a beautiful companion scene. Yeah. All right. Well, who's uh, we know that the father of the empire. There is a father. He played by the rules. He exists. Uh, who? I mean, is this, is this even a question? Who is the dad? No. Who the dad yeah. is? It's not. It's it's our girl, Samara Weaving. Yeah. I, I would watch her in anything. I would watch her do dishes. I mean, I, I feel as if like there is an agreement between like actor and the whole apparatus of the rest of the movie in this, because like there's just so many moments where the acting that she does just doesn't feel cliche at all. Like it doesn't feel like we've seen it before. It feels like suddenly like here is a real person behaving in many ways the way you would behave if this was happening to you, which yes. is like with a sense of like, what the fuck is this really happening? And Agreed. then it's kind of an internal monologue about it. There's like a little moment that I noticed this time where it's like she has kind of figured out like, oh, fuck, this is like people are trying to kill me. And her new husband, Alex, has like grabbed her and is like, get your shoes on. We're, I'm going to help you escape. And there's just a moment where she's like she sits down to get her shoes on and she just is like we just see her like sort of reacting and like kind of dissociating a little bit. Like I see that as the moment when like the bad shit is going down when you're like, surely this isn't really happening. And then you're like, no, this is this is no dream. This is really happening to quote Rosemary Woodhouse. And just the fact that like she is acting all those little moments of like human reaction and also that the people around her like have the sense to want that and to keep that in the movie and to prioritize that. Like I, yeah, I didn't think that I could love a brand new scream queen this much but like she has like vaulted into like the gold medal spot in my heart after this movie <laughs> i love her so much agreed agreed i just fully endorse everything you just said <laughs> awesome so go watch some horror or don't if you don't want to do whatever you need to do to make the anxiety demons like shut up for five minutes i don't care what it is as long as it's legal and you're not hurting yourself yeah and also, there's like, there's a lot of harmless illegal things. I'm not going to draw a bright line there. <laughs> <laughs> and how. <laughs> <laughs>All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing these episodes. You make them sound so sweet, and we love that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lush for providing the beats that make our transition sound so great. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon, if that's something you do. Uh, thank you for following us on Instagram and following us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. Next week, we'll be talking about Wet Hot American Summer. We're keeping our summer seasonal theme going with Wet Hot American Summer and our friend Candace Hopper, who's coming back for her fourth visit. I think Candace is our most regular guest. Candace joined us uh, very early on in the show for our Dirty Dancing episode, another summer great. All right, that's it for now. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here. You are good, everybody.